0: Hi from Buffalo, Sunday
1: afternoons in July and August can be spent on the steps and lawn of the Albright-Knox Art Gallery in Delaware Park. Jazz at the Albright-Knox is the nation's longest-running free jazz festival. Bring your blanket and picnic basket and relax. Buffalo does summer right. I'm Peter Sabota. In our second episode with Dr. William Whippler, He continues his discussion of human rights by detailing the assumptions and root causes that drive immigration to the United States. He describes who's coming and why and the unintended consequence of US policy. Dr. Whipler concludes by discussing what motivates him to persevere in a long struggle and offers advice for others interested in promoting human rights and justice. The Reverend Canon William L. Whippler, PhD, D.D. has served as a priest, missionary, human rights advocate, and scholar working in more than 80 nations throughout the world for more than 60 years. In addition to his missionary and human rights work, Dr. Whippler has authored or co-authored seven books on human rights, church history, Latin America, and edited the NCC Latin America newsletter in human rights perspective, as well as a collection of statements on human rights and justice by official Anglican provinces and agencies. For his service in human rights advocacy, Dr. Whippler has earned awards and recognition from organizations such as the United Nations and the governments of Chile and Brazil. Dr. Whippler was interviewed by her own Stephanie Sacco, a current MSW student and graduate assistant for Global Initiatives here at the UB School of Social Work. Stephanie interviewed Dr. Whippler in April of 2015.
2: I wanna ask you more specifically about the root causes. You talked a little bit about the root causes of the militarization of governments and some of the torture and other human rights violations. I'm interested in hearing more about the root causes of immigrant and refugee populations that we are now seeing coming to the United States, which is causing a whole other issue that I know you've been very interested in and done a lot of work on, immigration rights. But before we even get to that, the root causes What is causing these people to flee?
3: I think in many cases, most cases, things happened during uh, the period following the Second World War but onward that have created social disarray and really terrible problems in terms of the way borders were mapped. The Victor always has this attitude that they can create the new boundaries. I think that over and over again, uh, the situation has arisen where, if for a full two decades or more, a particular attitude has persisted, for example, in the 21 republics of the Caribbean, Central America, and South America, there was this attitude that there is a total war against communism. This is what the beginning created. We have to be prepared to meet the enemy, the communists. Cuba has fallen, January 1st, 1959. We have to prepare for the domino effect. As Cuba goes, so will Latin America. And so we double up on the way in which We see democracy, in quotes, being preserved. And we overreact. And we do something that we were preparing ourselves for very early. I'm giving you one example because it's true in other places outside of the Americas. Before the School of the Americas was even formed, two treaties were signed with the countries of Latin America. They were mutual defense treaties. They were signed in the late 40s because the United States was fearful of, and rightly so, of the power of the Soviet Union and what was occurring in the Soviet sphere, the communist sphere. But the fact is that they went overboard. They did prepare well in advance for dealing with Latin American militaries. But then the School of the Americas, which was established in the early 50s, trained all of these militaries of Latin America in the concept of total war. And in a sense, we're suggesting that civilian governments were untrustworthy because they didn't understand how to carry on a a total war. This was part of the school of the Americas indoctrination. It was national security strategy. It was called the National Security Doctrine. And it was an attempt to point out how standing together the militaries can keep Cuba from happening, the domino theory. Well, there was a different domino theory that occurred. And that is all of the countries fell to military governments, which lasted for two, three decades. What does this mean? This means that the perspectives that were present altered the social order. In most cases, in the Americas, democracy was even though you had these petty dictators and so on. People understood democracy. Argentina had had a democratic system. Chile had had a democratic system. Brazil, Peru, Uruguay, they were all countries that understood elections, had elections. But with the prodding of the United States and with the provision of now a new ideology, unlike the past, military governments came into being with the idea they'd remain in your way you had a petty dictator the army saw that it was his behavior was creating disturbance and social unrest other things and so the military would intervene they'd find somebody else to stick into the presidency and they would withdraw they didn't run the government they may have backed it but it wasn't a military that ran the government Now and again, a general would But he was running the government as a petty dictator, maybe. But there were things that he couldn't do because there were safeguards. After this process is underway, when the military take over, they don't replace the civilian president that they threw out. They put one of their own in charge of the country. General Pinochet in Chile a general or an admiral in Argentina, a general in Brazil. So country by country, you have a military concept as the backbone, and virtually every person who took power was undergirded by a cabinet and so on, was an officer trained at the School of the Americas. I think that's a very important fact of history. So now, if there's difficulty, if people are leaving some of these countries, and that all started very late. The 1980s was when the crisis began in Central America, from which most of the refugees are now coming. The civil disorder, the breakdown of social society and so on, occurred in the midst of civil wars. The only country that escaped was Costa Rica. Guatemala was under a military dictatorship, El Salvador, Honduras, Panama, Nicaragua, civil war intervened by the United States, providing the Contras with arms, the old National Guard, by the way. So you have this terrible social problem, and then you have a new war, war against communism. Then you have the war on drugs. And basically, the United States turns to police departments and militaries in the countries where the war on drugs is going on. And in most cases, the military are very inefficient or they're on the take. And what you have, for example, is an immigration law that makes it exceedingly difficult unless you are being persecuted directly by the government fear for your life to get permission to come to the United States. And that's why we get border runners. That's why so many refugees come across at the risk of life and limb to try to get into the United States because of the danger to themselves that they find in their own country. They're fearful.
2: A question that came to mind was this concept of the United States policies, their intended impact And the actual implications, the actual outcome of the policies, talking about the policy of the border and the wall that they've, you know, the fences and everything that they've created, those spaces that they leave, did they realize that this was where people were going to be coming across the most dangerous parts, like you said, at risk of life and limb? What is your thought on how policies are being created and the level of awareness of the actual implications and outcomes of those policies? and perhaps the break in the cycle of feedback from what happens as a result of the policy to any change that we would like to see in the policy?
3: I, mean, I think that one of the real things that, that bother me the most is that, that the Senate passed, a couple of years ago now, a bipartisan bill. It passed without any real problems to it being passed on immigration reform. It's not a perfect bill. It's an important bill. And it's important because I guess the best way to describe it is it's a humanitarian approach, not satisfactory in every way. And I think that the fact of that bill is something that the president decided had to be put into effect regardless. There's a hue and cry right now, oh, he's using executive power. What he's doing is really he has taken that Senate bill and he's trying to fulfill what is in a an already passed bipartisan bill which the Speaker of the House refuses even to bring up to a vote because the feeling is it will pass. And so for political reasons, the Speaker of the House does not want to allow it to come up because it will be a successful vote. So it would be bipartisan. There are enough Republicans who would vote with the Democrats for it to happen. But they're not allowing it to happen. And the result is that you're getting, I think, the example that you raised is a very important example. You have miles and miles of fence. You have miles and miles of vehicle, these places where vehicles can't go through. They're just impenetrable. Well, what they have done is purposely, they because traveling through that area is so dangerous, it's desert and mountainous country, they've left gaps in the fence. And yet, in spite of knowing what's ahead and the dangers, immigrants cross at those points, and children are among them, the, the numbers of children have gone up to 60-some thousand a year who come to the border and are turned away, but many get across. And they go through a desert that is absolutely almost impenetrable. There have been, over the last, I think it's seven years, eight years, there have been found 6,000 plus bodies in the desert. And they know there are many more in the desert and mountains that they've not found. In addition, wild animals, weather conditions, leave no remains. And I think that the American people are behind a reasonable immigration bill being passed. There's no question about it. But there's a lot of propaganda that is put forward that's totally false about the impact of illegal immigrants on the American economy. They take more out than they put in. They don't offer anything because they're all undereducated. They are third-rate people etc., etc. The fact is that the statistics are absolutely the opposite of that. They truly do put more money into the U.S. economy than they take out in any benefits. The issue is, if they are productive people, there have to be some changes in the law so that they are people who can become citizens and not have to go back to their countries to make that application. If they are already working in jobs and are paying taxes, they pay an enormous amount of taxes. They have withholding. They pay Social Security, those who work. The ones who don't work place less of a demand on the social services than citizens who are not working place on the social services. So I think that somewhere along the way, the fables... Have to be passed by for people who are human beings who may have come to this country illegally but who have been giving to the community. Everybody thinks of it as wetbacks, to use the nasty phrase, as Mexicans swimming across that river. But the fact of the matter is, many of those who have not gotten their papers in order are very productive people. They give to their communities more than they take away. And I think that has to be taken into account and the media has to do a little bit more of its own research and not fall in with the nasty speeches by, I believe, uninformed members of Congress or people who have a particular political battle that they want to create and see what the real statistics are about those who are here.
2: This leads me to wonder, how did we get to this place where we are so uninformed and where people see that it is of political advantage to them to prevent something like this immigration reform bill from passing? Why is it so? And what do you imagine can be done? I hear you saying, you know, the media changing, how they're presenting the argument. but How did we even get to this place? Well,
3: I'll be very honest. I think that it is two things. And I think racism is a big part of it. No one complains about the fact that great-grandma and great-grandpa or grandma and grandpa or mom and dad came into the United States perhaps during that incredible amount of Western, Eastern, and Central European entry between about 1823 and then right up to the beginning of the Second World War. My grandparents came not because they were fearful of a government. They came because crops had failed in Germany, as in Ireland, as in Spain, as in Italy. It was a terrible period of time of drought and and so on around 1844. And revolutions were occurring largely because people there was unrest, there were strikes, people were demanding food. And so our grandparents and great-grandparents came here not because they were persecuted by the government. They wanted a better life. And that is the big wave of entry into the United States. We're willing to have Polish and German and British and Czechoslovakian and Irish. It strikes me we don't find any fault with that infestation of all those foreigners because they were all white. Well, the Italians are a little tan. And the Spaniards, well, they're responsible for all those Mexican people wanting to come across. But basically, the people who make the most noise are the people who feel that that was okay, that immigration was great. The millions who came. Because they're like me. They were my grandfather and grandmother or my great-grandfather and grandmother. But these other people... And we forget that we took away a third of the land of those other people in a badly mismatched war. And as part of the treaty, they had to give up California, Arizona, Nevada, Texas, New Mexico. That was their land. We did something similar to the Native Americans. So when people are saying those people, I'm sure they're not referring to their great-grandparents. I think they're referring to those people who don't look like them, who are on their borders. And in many cases, those people are people from whom the biggest land grab in history, apart from some of the things that happened in the Soviet Union and China, the biggest land grab in history. So I believe we aren't willing to see our own history, and that's a piece of the problem.
2: So on the topic of people coming across the border, and I heard you mention the children that are coming across. Could you speak more about why they're coming, who they are, and what's happening to them?
3: I think that we have to go back always to the question of what was occurring, and Central America is mainly where the pressures are coming from now. You see, when the countries of South America were recovering their political stability, got rid of the military governments, and began to deal with the realities of democracy. The flow virtually stopped from those countries. The professionals still would like to be part of some of the structures that are here. There are those who want to get an education here. They go through real methods to do it, and they become... They get an educational visa or whatever it may be, so they do it legally. But there are some things that are happening still. The reverberations are very powerful in Central America, in Guatemala, Honduras, Nicaragua, and El Salvador. And that's where most of the push is coming from, and Mexico, of course, where the push is coming from to cross the border. The tragedy is that because of certain circumstances, parents are willing to either have their kids go with a coyote, which is uh, the guy who takes money to try to get him across the border and so on, or they risk their lives doing it themselves. And it is because of the circumstances in their own country. It's very hard to prove that they fear for their lives. I'll give you an example, El Salvador which had its civil war up until the end of the 80s, the end of the Reagan administration, I must say, and into the 90s. The situation was such that when the war-war ended, we were doing such a bad job in restraining the Mexico drug trade that it took up home in gangs in El Salvador, gangs that had never existed before the armed conflict. Adolescence, at, at this onset of adolescence, every kid is confronted with a choice of what gang he or she is going to join. And it could be a life decision. If you won't join a gang, your life is in danger. If you do join a gang, you are part of the drug trade. You are part of gang wars. And so many of the youngsters who leave Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, not so much the ones from Nicaragua, but those three at least, are doing it because their parents are really, truly and deeply concerned about the life of that child. But to prove that your life is in danger, our laws require virtually a newspaper article about the fact that you were threatened or some proof in some way. And, for example, in 2000, I, the last figures I have, a 2000 fiscal year, July of 2013 to June of 2014, 65,000 unaccompanied minors appeared at the gates of the United States. And we don't know how many, that's along the, the border, we don't know how many actually made it across and got into the desert. And these are kids as young as eight and nine and they're traveling alone. And if parents allow it and want it, and if the children are willing to face it, there is some question about life and survival and endangerment and threat that will let them take that serious journey of 1,400, 1,500 miles to the border from where they live and then facing the dangers across the border in the desert. The lack of water, the heat, the dangers of the desert scorpions and rattlesnakes and everything else that's there, or the mountains, that's the only two choices they have. Those are the gaps in the fence, and yet they'll take the risk. And I think that we have to have a far more enlightened policy when it comes to children. And so I think that we are in urgent need of opening our eyes. 70%, well, it goes from 66 to 71%, depending on who has done the survey of the American people, are in favor of an improved immigration law. That many people. I mean, it's like capital punishment or so many other things where the people are in a position that is over against the politician, and yet they're supposed to be representing the people.
2: So moving forward, how do we change that?
3: I think but one of, what I remember during the 60s and 70s when we were having the biggest struggle 60s, 70s and 80s we were the biggest struggle about human rights my congressmen congresswomen were all still having town hall meetings the person in my district was always very upset when I appeared because I took him off the stated thing he was going to be speaking about you know, come the questions, I'd put my hand up, but he couldn't have given me for the entire session. And I raised with him some real issues and he had to answer them. We were friends and he used to laugh when we were out of the session. And he would say, oh, I dread it when you come in because you ask all the questions for which I can't give any answers since my voting mm-hmm. pattern doesn't quite fit your questions. He was very honest, very honest. But the fact of the matter is he had face-to-face meetings with people who could raise the questions, real town hall meetings. I hardly see an advertisement these days anywhere for town hall meetings. All electioneering is done on television, radio, and in the press, and not facing the electorate, the great majority. Oh, there are some who still do it. And there are some who open up the radio program that there aren't for questions to come from people, but they are always screened by the people who get the call to find out what it is you want to ask about. So there was a a biased screening. All of the questions don't get through. But in the days of the town hall, you had a sense that your representative at least heard your questions, may not agree with you, but those were put out in front of the whole public. And you had a chance to also have the constituency. Now it is all mass media. It costs millions for each campaign. And most Congress people, senators or representatives, don't have to face their electorate. We talk about it, but it doesn't happen. And I think that election reform, with standard amounts of money being granted from public funds, for any campaign that may be occurring is the only way to go because the great difficulty now is money is speech that's what the supreme court says and actually yes money is speech but that means ads that is not the kind of speech you get when a member of the congress there are members of the congress who rarely ever face their constituencies the way they do it is letters to their constituencies. That's all their opinions out there, you know. Or if they're a candidate running in a race, it's rarely a public thing. It's all these ads, and you can't always test the truth of the ads that they brought up. And so I think hand-in-hand hand with immigration reform, there has to be election reform. There has to be some standards that we recover There are so many Senators and members of the House who are always talking about, Oh, the Constitution! But the fact of the matter is that the spirit of the Constitution is really being negated by television, radio, and newspapers being the substitute. And you can't tell me, Oh, but there's the Internet. Because the number of people who turn to those kinds of things in the Internet are really very small in comparison to those who turn on the tube at night or the radio in their car or pick up a newspaper now and again. So there's no dialogue with the people who are supposed to be representing us in the Congress. And I think that, frankly, I am so glad that we have that one word at the front of that statement, and that it is human rights, not American rights. Okay, those are built into law some other way. But this is a recognition of what all human beings deserve simply because they are human beings. And that there has to be work toward the changing, the moderating, the moving, the developing of societies and the interactions between those societies. So the good things that lead to the exercise of human rights, the action with human rights, is a fact. And that if someone's rights are denied, they do impact me in a whole variety of ways. And I believe that we've got to open our hearts and our eyes to see that. We've tried over the last decades to deal with things like male privilege. And I think we have a long way to go to deal with human privilege, to get that more universal sense that I deal with you, not because you are Protestant or Catholic, Hindu or Muslim, or because you are white, or black, or brown, or yellow, I deal with you because you are a human being on this earth. And I agree that there is such a thing as human rights, and it applies to everyone. And as long as somebody is being denied that, then I can't be comfortable with the rights and privileges that I know I have.
2: That one makes me want to ask you about What is it that motivates you to do your work, to keep moving? And I see sort of a personal approach to the work that you have done. But you've faced so many obstacles.
3: When I went to high school, there was a teacher in high school. I went to Brooklyn Tech. I was studying mostly physics. But I discovered history because I had to take English history, you know, the basic courses in addition to all the technical engineering stuff I was doing and this guy made me understand what history was so when I got through my professional training and finished seminary I decided I wanted to go overseas I wanted to be a missionary and I wanted to take what I knew and share it only I found out that I went and I learned more from the people uh, who I worked with than I did anything I could give them. And I think that has always been a piece of the human rights question. I saw and felt what people in my parish in the Dominican Republic were going through. I knew what the heavy hand of the dictator was like. I almost suffered from it myself. And when I went to the National Council of Churches, after my two and a half years in Costa Rica, after the Dominican Republic, I asked the boss, I was the assistant director, I asked if I could begin to pick up on some of the human rights issues, and he said, please do. And I did. And that was the way. And once I started, I realized that if there is not a justice element in all of this, then you don't have a ground to stand on. The justice element has to be part of it.
2: A final question that I'd like to ask you, what would be your advice to anyone who's interested in carrying on with some of the work that you've done, who's interested in getting involved on the micro level, the macro level, whatever, in whatever way they can to advocate for human rights?
3: I don't think there's any professional, amateur, educational arena in which people, social arena, in which people function and live and in a sense have their being sometimes even exercising their bliss where the issue of justice and human rights isn't kind of there or at the edge of it or just out beyond. You're in the social work department here at the university. I think that, unfortunately, social workers very often will deal with people as clients. That's the word that's used. And not as needy. But needy not in the sense of the beggar, but needy in the sense of support and the human piece of that support that you or anyone who's engaged in that discipline can provide. I don't care if you're an accountant. There are things that you do just by being with people that respond to their dignity and rights that are an expansion of their personhood, or a closure of their personhood. Social workers, in particular, have to be exactly what they are meant to be, and that is not just somebody who helps people fill out forms, or someone who goes and visits to find out a list of needs, or a follow-up for um, a medical treatment. They're dealing with people, human beings. And everyone can help someone else, discover their dignity. So I think that that we can't weigh the places where we work or study or have our moments of recreation without realizing that there are people there who have pain, who have needs, who have the desires to be seen as human beings. And so the word human rights and human beings just fit together. They are something that, unfortunately in our time, are not built into the whole process of who we are becoming. My mother would not, my father, would not let me forget that I am not only for myself, I am going to be for other people. And so if I got into it, it was natural because of the fact that they helped me see more about humanity than I probably was fortunate for me that I lived in the Depression, was born in the Depression, and they knew how to respond to the sadnesses of other people because of the Depression.
2: All right. Well, thank you for taking the time to meet with me today. It's been an absolute pleasure.
1: Thank you for inviting me. You've been listening to Dr. William Whippler discuss human rights on in social work.
0: Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, Professor and Dean of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We look forward to your continued support of the series. For more information about who we are as a school, our history our online and on-the-ground degree in continuing education programs, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. And while you're there, check out our Technology and Social Work Resource Center. You'll find it under the Community Resources menu.